Father, we want to declare our love for you today and ask that we would understand your love for us and understand more of your transforming desires for our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, and the most glorious action that can take place in a human life. Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, and the most glorious action that can take place in a human life. There is something in that sentence that I think speaks to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are grateful to God for redeeming us and for bringing us into the family of God. But life and our walk with God continually comes back to worship. What does worship mean to us? What does worship do in us? What do we think about when we think about worship? For the last couple of decades, maybe longer, the church has been discussing worship. I'll say, I'll use the nice word. Um, we had a lot of dialogue about worship. It's often been a volatile issue, and it often centers around generations or worship styles or the kinds of instruments that we use or shouldn't use in worship. We've even gotten to the place where instead of our discussions helping us draw closer together, they've actually divided us to the point where we use the term worship wars. How could there be any more, uh, any greater oxymoron than that? Worship wars. And yet the church is embroiled in worship wars. Arguing, fighting, dividing about worship. Now this is not new for our generation. I think the whole, our our struggle with understanding worship goes back to our mother and father in the Garden of Eden. And what does it mean for God to be in control and for them to worship him? And the Israelites struggle with what it means for them to worship God. And I am quite certain that the 5th century B.C. post-exilic Jews who are coming back to reestablish Jerusalem and reestablish the temple and the worship that's a part of that struggle with it too. They've been living in Babylon and Persia. And that has begun to influence their understanding of worship. And as they come back and they're trying to figure all of this out, there are a lot of opinions, a lot of discussion. And I would guess there are a lot of differences of opinion. And so the chronicler, realizing that 
you know, as the chronicler puts together this, this account of helping people understand, these Jews in the 5th century B.C. understand, what does it mean for God to be the king? And what does it mean for his people to be citizens of his kingdom? One central element of that discussion has to be worship. Because worship is vital to the Christian life. And if worship is vital to the Christian life for them, it's vital for us. And what he says to them is important to us. And what does the chronicle put together here? What does he say? Well, beginning in chapter 13 and moving on through a number of chapters that follow, he talks about worship. In the context of David becoming king... And the Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 12 ends with David establishing his kingdom. He, he has completed his rise to power. He has conquered nations and the, and the lands around them. And he is now established as the king of Israel. Exactly what God intended to happen and anointed David to do. This is a glorious time for Israel. In fact, they would, they would look back later and say it was the glorious time of Israel. No, no time has ever been better. And it's a wonderful time for the people. But there is a problem. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is a a wooden box covered with gold. Contains the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. By the time the 5th century rolls around. More than likely the the Ark has been destroyed. Probably when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem 100 or so years earlier. And so they... They don't have the ark, but it symbolizes the presence of God. It symbolizes God among his people. Exodus 25 records God's instructions to Moses about building the ark. And then God says, there above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. And I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. The ark represents the presence and the power of God and the word of God to his people. It is a holy thing. And it resides in the most holy place. And it symbolizes everything that they understand of worship. As David comes to power, unfortunately, the ark is... About 11 miles from Jerusalem, about from here to Belfast maybe, in Kiriath-Jerim. It has been ignored by Saul. And David says in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3, that the ark was out of sight, out of mind during the days of Saul. Saul was so disconnected from God that he left the ark over there and just let it stay. He didn't have anything to do with the ark and with God and his people. And he just left it completely out of Israel's plans. It was symptomatic of Saul's experience with God, of leaving him out of his life. But David, whose heart is turned to God, wants to bring it back. So in the opening verses of chapter 13, David confers with men around him, his commanders, his officers. 
And he says to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, if it's the will of the Lord our God, let's send the word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, to the priests and the Levites, and let's bring the ark of God back to us. And that's what they do. And the ark is is put on a cart that's pulled by oxen. About halfway to Jerusalem, the oxen stumble. And the cart shakes, and it looks like the thing is going to fall off of the cart. And so Uzzah, one of the priests, reaches out to save it. Seems like a right thing to do, doesn't it? Something as valuable as an ark is about to fall, you keep it from falling. But God is so angry with him that he strikes Uzzah dead right on the spot. He touched the holy thing of God. Now it's important foundationally to remember that God's anger is never capricious. God does not get angry the way we do. You you think about it. Most of the times when we get angry, it's because someone hurt our feelings. Or because we didn't get our way. It's about us. But God's anger is not based on that kind of capricious decision making. God is angry when people, when people make decisions that disrespect what he is doing and who he is. Because when we do that, we're turning ourselves away from God. And turning away from God is always damaging to us. And so it's important to understand God does not act out of anger the same way that we do. It is always justice and righteous. Hardly can we ever say that ours is. So as Uzzah touches the ark, there is is something in that. That Uzzah is saying to God, it's a good thing I was here to protect you. It's a good thing I was here to keep your, your precious ark from falling and crashing on the ground. What would you do, God, without me? And in that very act, we see often the mindset that many of us come to worship with. But the truth is, God doesn't need us to help him. He says, look, I'm going to help you. He doesn't need us to make sure he's taken care of. God says, I will protect you. I'll tell you what is happening in the world and why it's happening. I'll keep you safe. You don't need to worry about protecting me. And that, But that mindset we have about, about us thinking we need to protect God comes out in our worship. And it, it, it's, it tells us that we have a really small view of God. If we have to protect God, what kind of God is he? And when we have a small view of God, we take worship lightly. Our participation in worship, when we have a small view of God, becomes optional. Even though God demands it. With a small view of God, we sing casually and mindlessly. We give without really any sense of gratitude for God's blessings. With a small view of God, we read the scriptures with little sense of the power of God at work in the scriptures to work in our lives. With a small view of God, 
when we pray, we don't realize the powder keg that is at our disposal in the presence of God. With a small view of God, we have a tendency to listen to preaching with an ear toward evaluation rather than transformation. I don't know what would have happened if Uzzah had not touched the ark. Maybe it would have, God would have suspended it in air. Maybe God was going to settle it himself. Maybe it was going to crash to the ground. But that's God's problem. Whatever would have happened, God would have worked through that. But the problem is, the ark shouldn't have been on a cart in the first place. In Exodus 25 and Deuteronomy 10, God instructs the Israelites about how to transport the ark. And it doesn't say anything about a cart. On the side of the ark are rings. And they're to slide poles through the rings, wooden poles. And it's on, with those poles that the Levites carry the ark. Now, 11 miles is a long way to carry an ark like that. It was covered in gold, so you know it had to be relatively heavy. And you can see the wheels turning in their minds of, you know, that's a long way to go. It seems like an awful lot of work. There's got to be a better way than that. You know, human ingenuity. You know, I remember a time when the Philistines had the ark and they wanted to get rid of it and they put it on a new cart and they sent it back. Work for them. And it's not like we're going to put it on an old trashy cart. We're going to build it. We'll, we'll build a new cart for it. I mean, this is God. We'll, we'll, we'll do this right. But the problem is God said, who said anything about a cart? I want you to carry it with poles. And putting it on the cart isn't just an innocent oversight. It's a blatant act of disobedience against God. And here's the struggle with most of us for worship. We don't really understand sometimes that when we claim to be citizens of God's kingdom, then if God says come and worship, we don't argue about it. We just do it. And if God says worship by focusing all of your attention on me, we don't argue about it. We just do it. When God says recognize that I am sovereign and you bend your will to mine... We don't argue about it. We just do it. And we don't have to understand it. We don't even have to agree with it. Because honestly, our opinion really doesn't matter. If we're citizens of God's kingdom, worshiping God together in the spirit of awe and reverence and obedience is just what we do. And if we refuse to do that, then we really need to take stock about our citizenship in the kingdom. I think it was Walt Kaiser who said when he was here that our chief goal of life is not for God to please us. It's for us to please God. Because when we live and worship to please God, then that means our hearts are turned to him. And when our hearts turn to him, we begin to experience the fullness of his presence. And in the fullness of his presence is life and everything that we desire. Our worship is stunted and weak and unfulfilling, not because we don't get to do what we want, but because we're focusing on us instead of on God. And we need to come with a, 
with a heart of awe and reverence about the holy God who is sovereign over everything. And for citizens of the kingdom, we just live with that mindset. It takes the Israelites a while, but eventually they get it right. You notice the first time they go to get the ark, David says, Hey guys, what do you think? Should we go do this? The second time, David says, Lord, what ought we to do? And I would have loved to have seen the preparations that second time. You know, they've got the book of the law out there and they're reading it really closely now. You know, tab A into slot B. Um, make sure that's the right one. Here, you slide the pole in. I'm not sliding the pole in. You touch it. I'm not going near it. <laughs> you put the pole in there. There's a little bit more awe and reverence and understanding of God. And I suspect that one of the reasons God is interested in what we do in worship is because it is a continual test of our obedience and our willingness to bow before him as the sovereign Lord. That when we come for worship, it is first and foremost about him, not about us. And worship that's not about him is empty. It's meaningless. John Stott once said that there's no book more scathing of empty religion than the Bible. And he reminded us of what Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because when they come for worship, it's not about God. It's about them. And, but, you know, we can go to the other direction and begin to worship, worship. And that, too, is a problem because God's not central. After the first incident of, of them trying to bring the ark out and they stop and they leave it at Obed-Edom's house, there is, a, there is a, a little interlude of a couple of battles with the Israelites and the Philistines. What's interesting about that is that when you go back to 2 Samuel that gives us basically these same stories, the battle with the Philistines comes first. And then David goes and gets the ark, they have trouble, then they go back and get it. And I was pondering why the chronicler who's writing not so much a chronological history as a theological history would, would shift that story. And I suspect it might have something to do with the people worshiping the ark instead of worshiping God. And thinking that as long as they have the ark, everything's okay. It, it's the mindset that you see in, in the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, if you're like me, when I read this passage, that comes to my mind. It's one of the, I remember seeing it in the theater in college, and it felt like when the movie was over, I finally was able to take a breath. You know, it was just action after action. And, and I love this movie, even if the historicity of it may not be so accurate. But there's a scene in the, near the beginning of the movie where a couple of, of U.S. intelligence agents come and they meet with Indiana Jones, who's this half-archaeologist, uh, half-John Wayne, half-James Bond. And, and he, they come and they, they meet with him and they're trying to figure out a message that they have intercepted about the Nazis digging in the desert. 
And Indiana Jones begins to explain to them about, well, they're looking for the ark. And the, the ark, and he tells them the story, and he shows them pictures. And there's a picture of lightning flashing out of it. And they say, what is that? Well, power of God or something. And he said, if you believe in that kind of stuff. And, he said, and then one of the intelligence agents says, I think I'm beginning to understand Hitler's interest in this. And Indiana Jones's comrade says, oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. But it's not the ark that makes armies invincible. It's God who is invincible. And it's not our worship that makes us right. It's God who makes us right. And it's interesting to me that in the middle of this story, the Israelites leave the ark five, six miles away. When the Philistines attack and David inquires of God, God answers him and speaks to him. And they go out and they defeat the Philistines twice. And the ark is nowhere around. And I think in the midst of God helping them understand that he's sovereign and that they ought to approach him with awe, there is always grace. And there is this message that comes through this where God says, we don't worship worship, we worship God. And it's so easy to shift that. When we worship worship, it's about what we want. When we worship God, it's about what he wants. When we worship God, what we do in worship is less important than the focus of what we do in worship. And it doesn't matter the musical style. It doesn't matter what the liturgy looks like. It's that God is first. And God is foremost. And it's about God. Who is gracious and merciful and good. Even when we don't do what we ought to do. But the end of all of this is celebration. And the ironic thing is that when we take God seriously, when we come to God in in awe and worship and we put him first, the natural result of that is celebration. Because we have connected ourselves with the one who gives life and who has promised joy and peace and freedom. And so once the ark, once they get it right and the ark is coming into Jerusalem, there is this amazing celebration. And they they dance and they sing and they rejoice. And no one more than David. David is dancing and singing, leading the procession. When you go to 2 Samuel, you get the implication that the David isn't wearing a whole lot when he's doing this dance. And his wife is watching out the window and she becomes angry and embittered toward David. And you, you, you wonder if it's because David is being immodest. But that doesn't seem to be the case. The writer of Chronicles tells us it's because her heart is hardened toward God. She isn't even willing to go out onto the street. She's not a part of the celebration at all. She's just angry Because David's king and not Saul, her father. And she's angry at God, which makes her angry at David and makes her unprepared and and, and 
unwilling to worship God. And sometimes when God doesn't do what we want, when things don't happen the way we want, our anger with God, it's going to affect our worship. And maybe that's part of the reason why we've ended up in a situation where we talk about worship wars. I have to tell you something humorous. I, I, I sent the wrong scripture passage, New Testament scripture passage. As, as Christina was reading that, I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like the one I had chosen. And I looked at it and I realized I wrote down Matthew and it should have been Mark. And the Mark passage where Jesus says, they honor me with their lips, but not with their hearts. But as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking, wow, God is amazing. Because right here, it's don't judge, lest you be judged. It's about your heart toward the things that you don't like and the things that we, don't disagree, that we disagree with. And right here is the same idea. Things haven't gone our way and we get judgmental. Why? Because we think it's about us. And it's not about us. It's about God. It's about what God wants, even if it isn't exactly what we want. Because he is first and foremost in our minds and our hearts when we come for worship. We gather because of him. But when we gather because of him, there is joy. And there's celebration and there's freedom to worship as God leads us and directs us. Ultimately, this story is about the God we worship. It reminds us that we worship a God, honestly, who is demanding of us. Who desires obedience from us. Who is sovereign above all things. And before whom we come and we bow in awe and reverence. But this is also a story about our God who is the ultimate definition of mercy and grace. With whom, when we bow before him, fills us with freedom to celebrate. Because he loves us and he cares for us. And he desires only what's best for us. In the end, this passage is telling us two things. God should be taken seriously in worship. And God should be freely celebrated in worship. If God is first, both of those things are going to happen. This is an account of how we view worship because, and ultimately, worship is about how we view God. Is He first? Or do we think we're first? Is He in control? Or are we grasping for control? Is it about him or is it about us? You know, introduced in the series, this, this chair, which is symbolic of a throne. And the Chronicles is about telling us that God is the king who sits on the throne and we're his citizens of the kingdom. And the tree represents those first nine chapters of the genealogies that we're all citizens of God's kingdom throughout history, history to come, and around the world. And we're all connected as citizens of his kingdom. And we celebrate that. And those who are, who are citizens of the kingdom are people whose hearts are turned fully to God, who worship him and surrender to him. 
And when we do, God does some amazing things for us, even heroic things, as this cape represents. Things that we thought really didn't matter. I was trying to think about what might symbolize our conversation today. And I thought about a hard hat. Because there is, a, there is something in worship that ought to be a little bit dangerous. This is the almighty God. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we come into his presence, there ought to be a seriousness about who he is and worshiping him and surrendering to him. But attached to the hat is a balloon. Because there also ought to be celebration. It's both. It's putting God first, recognizing who he is, and he leads us to freedom and celebration that we could have never experienced by trying to do this on our own. So what does your worship look like? What is your attitude about worship as you come? Who's first? Who's central? Who's it about? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us today to see ourselves truthfully and realistically. Give us new hearts to put you first. To worship you first as the sovereign almighty God. And then to let you fill us with joy and the celebration and freedom of being your children. Through Christ Jesus. Amen.